собой шли вдвоем, а фонарики горели. И при виде их на момент прийти, и сердца наши замляли. Hello and welcome to the SRB podcast, where in each episode we discuss Eurasian politics, culture, and history. As always, I'm your host, Sean Guillory. The SRB podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and members of the SRB Table of Ranks, who give monthly contributions from anywhere between $5 to $25. If you'd like to support the podcast, go to my Patreon page at patreon.com slash blog or to the podcast website, srbpodcast.org, and hit that Patreon button and join the Table of Ranks. Russia has been much more geopolitically active since Vladimir Putin's speech at the Munich Security Conference in 2007. Russia has waged a war in Georgia, annexed Crimea, supported separatists in eastern Ukraine, intervened in the Syrian civil war, and has expanded its diplomatic relations in Asia, the Middle East, and Africa. All the while, relations with European powers and the United States have rapidly deteriorated. What are the ideas and logics behind Russian foreign policy? What drives Russian geopolitical engagement? On these questions, there is no better person to ask than Fyodor Lukyanov. Fyodor Lukyanov is editor-in-chief of Russia and Global Affairs, chairman of the Presidium of the Council on Foreign and Defense Policy, the research director of the Valdai International Discussion Group, and a research professor at the Higher School of Economics. He is the editor of Russia and the Middle East, Viewpoints, Policies, Strategies, published by East View. Here's Fyodor Lukyanov. So I thought we'd start by just having you introduce yourself. Okay, my name is Fyodor Lukyanov. I'm editor of Russian Global Affairs magazine, which is a Russian publication uh, a Russian equivalent to foreign affairs in New York, and we have a partnership with this uh, publication. I'm also uh, chairman of Constant Foreign and Defense Policy, which is an NGO dedicated to foreign policy research. And uh, I'm a research professor at the Higher School of Economics in Moscow. This is a university. Talk a little bit about Russia and global affairs. You said it's similar to foreign affairs here in the United States. Does it have the same kind of stature as a place where some of the main thinkers of uh, Russian foreign policy come together and discuss and debate issues? Uh, yes, this is exactly the same idea. And the journal was uh, launched in uh, 2002, uh, almost 20 years ago, uh, when uh, the need for uh, extended foreign policy debate uh, was seen as uh, essential and indispensable in, in, in Russia. And the publisher of this journal, uh, a very well-known and esteemed uh, uh, professor in international relations, uh, Sergei Karaganov, uh, he uh, uh, reached out to um, uh, Foreign Affairs, uh, the American journal, uh, to launch a partnership. So we uh, started a magazine which is... Uh, uh, in style and in format similar to foreign affairs. Uh, we have no connection when it comes to editorial policy, but we have right to republish in the Russian version because we have Russian and English version. We have right to republish uh, any 
uh, articles from foreign affairs which we choose. And uh, as for the main uh, stuff, the uh, main uh, contents, yes, uh, this is exactly the same idea that all those who uh, have ideas about uh, Russian, uh, about concepts of Russian foreign policy, about uh, what is going on in the world, how Russia should uh, react to that, including officials, including foreign minister, who is our uh, frequent uh, contributor. Uh, so uh, we try to be in the middle of foreign policy debate in Russia. It's not a mass publication, of course, as much uh, uh, smaller in size than foreign affairs, which is a huge uh, giant. But um, we uh, uh, can say that we are pretty influential just in this field. Well, you have this new collection of articles um, that are, are about 28 articles that are taken from uh, Russia and Global Affairs. And, and the book is Russia and the Middle East, Viewpoints, Policies, and Strategies. So it's a collection of, of articles on the Middle East itself. And I thought it was really interesting that the book opens with two articles by the late Yevgeny Primakov, who is a real giant of Russian foreign policy thinking. Um, talk about Primakov's foreign policy thinking and and his legacy in Russia today? Yeah, Primakov was uh, really one of the most distinguished uh, foreign policy actors and thinkers in Russia in, say, uh, last uh, quarter of 20th century and first uh, uh, 15 years of 21st century. He died uh, 2015. Uh, and uh, he was extremely, I, I, I had the privilege to, to know him personally, and he was a member of our editorial board of the journal, uh, not just contributor. And uh, he was extremely interesting um, person because he, on the one hand, he was unbelievably experienced, especially when it came to the Middle East, but not only. So he had a fantastic uh, intuition and feeling about uh, uh, the cause, the, the uh, stream of foreign policy, stream of international affairs. And um, because he, he dealt with the different issues since uh, 1950s. At the same time, uh, he was, uh, uh, he had a very deep uh, academic background and some people uh, um, compared him to Henry Kissinger, so the Russian uh, equivalent of Kissinger. Uh, Kissinger was, of course, at, at, at uh, uh, a bit higher positions, both in academia and in uh, in the state apparatus. But uh, in terms of uh, um, uh, assessments, in, in terms of thinking, Primakov was like Kissinger, a staunch and uh, uh, principled realist uh, and. Uh, uh, he uh, was seen uh, by some people as a pretty uh, tough and hard anti-Western um, uh, political uh, uh, actor, uh, which I don't think was correct because he had a very clear understanding of uh, Russian national interests, Soviet national interests and then Russian national interests. Uh, at the same time, he had uh, a big deal of respect uh, for uh, in the United States. And uh, recently, so the, the, the uh, last period of, of Primakov coincided with the uh, extremely bad uh, 
relationship between Russia and the United States. It was <clears throat> Syrian crisis, then Crimean crisis, Ukrainian uh, <clears throat> development. And uh, Primakov, uh, as I know, was pretty unhappy about this because he believed that the United States is indeed the indispensable and the most important partner of the Russian Federation. And uh, it was uh, necessary to have uh, constructive and uh, uh, trustful relationship. Uh, he, he always insisted that uh, our national interests uh, are mostly con- um, uh, opposite and contradict each other. But uh, as a realist, he uh, claimed that Russia and the U.S. should find uh, common ground and uh, respect each other. So in this regard, he was, I would say, much wiser than many other Russian commentators of his time. And and how did he see Russia's place in the world as it was coming out of the, you know, reestablishing itself after the collapse of the Soviet Union? Yeah, that's that's an interesting question because uh, during the Soviet time, Primakov was uh, a fellow uh, defender of uh, uh, Soviet Union as a superpower with the global uh, outreach of interests and uh, uh, especially... Um, focused on the Middle East, but not only. So in the Middle East, he was just uh, the real creator of Russian policy throughout uh, decades. Uh, after collapse of the Soviet Union and uh, at the last stage of Soviet uh, Soviet period, he was uh, not just diplomat, he was one of uh, heads of state. He, he, he was chair of... Uh, if I not if I don't mistaken, upper chamber of Soviet uh, Soviet Union Parliament, uh, he tried, of course, to to keep it uh, to, to 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 keep it going and to to preserve it. But uh, since it didn't happen, he turned into as a realist. He turned into uh, a person who tried to formulate Russian national interest after after this uh, collapse, and uh, Primakov. Uh, uh, coined uh, this uh, notion of multipolar world uh, that was as early as 1995, I think, uh, the, at the time when Russia was, uh, to put it very mildly, in a very bad shape, uh, economically, politically, in all, uh, with all regards. And uh, uh, Primakov's idea, as I read it, maybe I'm wrong, but as I read it, was uh, that Russia will never be uh, back to the status Soviet Union had. So Russia will never uh, recover to the status of super, uh, superpower anymore. But Russia should be part of, uh, of a constellation of powers which basically decide uh, the future of, of the world order. And in this regard, his idea was, uh, um, was uh, opposed to uh, then-time... Uh, unipolar moment. So it was not about uh, to resist United States per se, but to resist monopoly in international affairs, which he always believed uh, was a very bad idea. Uh, Paradoxically, uh, now, several years after Primakov died, and uh, since uh, the the Russian Russian foreign policy changed profoundly since since, uh, mid-90s when he coined this term, but now we are in this multipolar world, which uh, Primakov predicted. And we see that, <laughs> in fact, uh, no one exactly knows what kind of 
what kind of agenda uh, should suit uh, Russian interest in this extremely different uh, world order or world disorder, how you, you name it. Uh, and, uh, of course, now I think we miss um, Evgeny Primakov very much because we need his w- wisdom and his intuition. Right. So as as the as the the geopolitical scene is undergoing this trans, you know, this transitional phase of multipolarity, um, Russia itself is going through a transitional phase and trying to find out its place in this this new configuration. Um, Let me ask, since you bring up the multipolarity issue, uh, let me ask you about that. You know what is what is your opinion of this? In are we in this transitional period? And and in many respects, when I when I think about you know multipolarity, for me it's more actually the norm of the history of geopolitics. Whereas bipolarity of the 20th century and the short period of unipolarity after the collapse of the Soviet Union is actually exceptional. And and here in the United States, these two, the bipolarity and unipolarity, are taken as the norm. For some reason, but really, if you look at the history, it 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 the multipolarity is going back to what is the norm for the history of geopolitics. So, talk about that, uh, your views on it, and and how you see it in the long history of geopolitical and international relations. So, I share your view hundred percent, and I am very glad that you say it, <laughs> because uh, no, normally when we discuss. Uh, uh, international affairs with our colleagues and friends in the United States uh, and uh, even in Europe. So we see uh, quite a strange phenomenon that uh, people perceive not just uh, bipolarity or unipolarity, but the the order, the notion of order, they perceive as something which is uh, normal, which, which should be. While, uh, as you absolutely rightly uh, pointed out, uh, not only multipolarity was a norm uh, throughout centuries of international relations, but I would say even stronger, anarchy, as uh, in 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 scientific uh, scientific term, anarchy as uh, interaction of different actors, different poles, we can say. Uh, Uh, without any uh, normative uh, cover or normative base for their actions, that was a normal. That that was actually what what happened in uh, uh, most of uh, historical periods. And in this regard, yes, indeed, you're absolutely right that 20th century gave us a (laughs) a wrong impression that a regulated international system is something which uh, should be, which is uh, by default option. I think actually, and uh, we have uh, uh, just now quite an intense debate in Russia, that this period of the period of orders, any orders, bipolar, unipolar, maybe even multipolar, but orders, regulated systems, uh, the, uh, this, uh, this era is, is over. And just now we are moving towards something, something which is much uh, more like, uh, I don't know which century, 90s, 80s, maybe even 70s century, when all actors operated according to their understanding of what they need and what they want. 
and the only limitation for their actions was actually uh, capacity and uh, actions of other actors. It sounds quite quite gloomy, but but uh, uh, indeed. Um, but one might say, though, too, in looking at that history, that that was also a history of intense conflict and 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 wars between major powers. Um, so, in in this new global order of of or multipolarity, how do you think that you know? great powers c- should come together to deal with conflicts and to deal with the interests of, say, smaller states. Yeah, that's very interesting because on the one hand, on the one hand, uh, it's very unpopular to say uh, among progressive people, but I actually believe that nuclear arms uh, play extremely positive role in just addressing this it- eternal and uh, embedded risk of wars between great powers. Look look at today's situation. All those who theoretically uh, might be involved in a new uh, uh, world war, uh, Russia, US, some European powers, China, India, all those have nuclear arms. Uh, despite the fact that the threshold uh, is is lowering, and and we we see quite uh, quite dangerous trends of uh, uh, so to say how to say it that people uh, lose fear for nuclear arms, nuclear uh, war, which was extremely strong in uh, when I was child, for example, in seventies and eighties. Now we don't see it in in that in in. Uh, um, in that scale, but but still, this is of course a limitation. This is a, a factor which, uh, uh, if I may say, it, civilizes uh, establishments in all big powers, and that means that uh, hopefully a risk for a big war, for a world war, is uh, not that high now. Uh, meanwhile, we see another trend that war is everywhere uh, anymore. We we see. Any possible hybrid information, economic, uh, cultural, whatever uh, wars, and uh, of course the uh, you mentioned uh, smaller states. Smaller states are uh, uh, as vulnerable as before, of course, as as always. At the same time, we see how inefficient and ineffective actions by big powers vis-à-vis minor powers are be it uh, Russian actions uh, against some uh, neighboring countries or American uh, wars and uh, um, deeds in, in the Middle East, or even, okay, look at Venezuela. Uh, 30 or 40 years ago, it, it would be no problem at all for the United States to change regime there. Now we see some, some yeah, something uh, happening, some, something kind of happening. So in this regard, uh, International system is more democratic because uh, through the asymmetric uh, uh, warfare and asymmetric actions, minor powers suddenly obtain resources or capacities which was never uh, in place before. And uh, big powers, they see actually much clearer limitations of their mind. So do you think that one of the the possibilities to 
to deal with the relations between great powers and the relations between great powers and smaller states. And then, of course, they, the, you know, the non-state actors that have proliferated in the last 20 years. Um, do you think that the, the, the globe in terms of geopolitics needs to rethink, say, uh, another regu- uh, a regulatory apparatus like the United Nations to set out some sort of rules? Or do you feel that great powers should deal with these things bilaterally or uh, trilaterally based on their interests? Uh, yeah, that's a good question. I would say that the, the latter uh, option is uh, more realistic. Uh, I don't think that anybody would dare and would be able to challenge United Nations because with all criticism we hear uh, against United Nations, be it in Russia, China, United States or elsewhere in Palestine, whatever. But uh, (laughs) simply you cannot invent uh, something else. How about reinvigorating the United Nations, like reestablishing its stature? Uh, you know, reestablish when you reestablish something which is already existing, it's not strengthening, it's weakening, actually. Uh, and as for reforming uh, United Nations, that's, uh, that's a deadlock from my point of view. On the one hand, uh, it's obvious that uh, uh, the current uh, composition of uh, UN Security Council, permanent members, P5 of Security Council, which reflects a uh, balance of powers as it emerged uh, 1945, it's not, uh, to put it mildly, it's not fully correct. It's not fully corresponding to the current situation. At the same time, uh, how uh, the hell you uh, find criteria to reform it? First of all, because no, never, ever in history, powers which had priv- privileges uh, voluntarily uh, uh, deprived themselves from privileges. So all those five uh, uh, permanent members, of course, they are they are very different, but they are united in their willingness to keep uh, this exclusivity uh, for themselves. And secondly, even if hypothetically, for reasons which I cannot imagine, but even if they um, uh, agree to, say, to invite other uh, permanent uh, uh, members with the same rights, how we will choose them and which, uh, based on which criteria? geographical, population, economy, what else? So it it will be never, without a war, uh, winners just dictate rules. Without a war, it's almost impossible. So United Nations, to me, is indispensable. But as for other international institutions, they are, of course, in uh, uh, quite uh, obvious crisis, and uh, it's not a big um, surprise, because most of them, were created for a completely different international environment in the second half of 20th century. And for that period, all institutions, be it NATO or EU or EC at that time, and even uh, Soviet-led institutions, they worked perfectly well because they were uh, uh, accustomed to to that situation. Now nothing uh, uh, left out of that, that international order. Institutions do. And uh, to me, it's not a big, uh, um, big uh, news when uh, pres- uh, President Macron suddenly says that NATO is brain dead. So in Russia, we uh, stated this uh, since many years that after end of the Cold War, NATO lost uh, raison d'être. Uh, 
uh, it was always denied by Western sides. Uh, Western Western partners said, "No, no, no, forget about this. NATO has many other missions and so on." Now suddenly they discovered the same. Since we've talked about this kind of general situation that we're existing in and trying to figure out what it's all about, let's turn to to how this world is viewed in Russia. Um, so what are some of the schools of, of Russian foreign policy? I would imagine that going back to Primakov, pretty most people are, are in dialogue with him in one way or another. So what are the different views in, in Russia today? Uh, you know, uh, Russia is uh, uh, very much different from the United States in this regard. In the United States, there are very clear schools of thought in foreign policy, at least uh, those uh, realist um, thinkers and practitioners uh, versus those uh, liberal internationalists, whatever, how you call it, and uh, several minor, several sections of that. Uh, In our case, uh, actually, the whole Russian foreign policy tradition is very... Some people would say old-fashioned, some people would say classical, some people would say traditional, but this is based almost entirely on the realist framework. And uh, the key notion for most of Russian um, writings and statements and concepts, this is a balance of powers, which is the key element of uh, uh, realist theory. Uh, of course, uh, after collapse of the Soviet Union, yeah, by the way, in, in the Soviet time, we had a much uh, uh, more interesting situation because de facto it was still, especially uh, after the Second World War, it was uh, primarily realist uh, foreign policy, uh, realist slash imperial foreign policy. But de jure, it was different. It was Marxist. It was communist, uh, which which was quite an interesting combination. Sometimes uh, Marxist dogmas uh, did contradict a realist needs very much, and that was one, that was one of the reasons why why Soviet Union failed in so many uh, uh, regards, especially when when it tried to expand and promote socialism worldwide. After that, by the way, we uh, in two thousand when the United States proclaimed uh, democracy promotion as the key uh, key uh, task uh, for foreign policy uh, i think many uh, commentators here they simply uh, simply did recognize our past with this <laughs> so uh, but after collapse of the soviet union uh, communism marxism leninism everything like this was uh, firmly rejected Sometimes even even too firmly, because I think uh, at least as a, as a, a theoretical school, it was worse to to study and to 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 follow. But uh, again, it, it it was another contradiction. Uh, officially, we wanted to join this big uh, new liberal uh, beautiful world. Uh, which United States, uh, under 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 slogan of uh, end of history, started to uh, to build. Uh, de facto, it was never bought by Russian establishment and by Russian public sincerely. It was an imitation, uh, and uh, 
uh, <laughs> I would uh, recommend uh, uh, to read an excellent book just released uh, uh, by Ivan Krasov and Stephen Holmes, uh, two uh, very distinguished uh, thinkers. They analyze the whole period after fall of the Berlin Wall and conclude that most of the world just tried to imitate what 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 the West told them. And uh, in, in Russian case, it was very, very over, uh, very clearly. Uh, in fact, behind this imitation, it was still uh, this realist balance of uh, powers-based uh, approach. And Primakov, coming back to Primakov, he was, after several years of this um, uh, uh, period of pre- pretending as if we were part of uh, West wo- Western world, Primakov came and uh, actually stated that, sorry, but we are different. And since that, we have this transformation which led to Putin. Um, let's talk about the Middle East. Um, you write in, in, in the book that the Middle East, uh, well, Foreman is a question. Why is the Middle East the specific place where Russia returned to the stage of uh, as a global player? Because... Uh, Russia went a uh, complicated and uh, complicated path uh, after collapse of the Soviet Union, and there were a lot of zigzags. But uh, why uh, I believe that uh, Middle East uh, became this turning point for, in 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 the sense of global power, uh, because. Russian activities, including military activities and military interventions before Syria, be it uh, direct intervention uh, in Georgia or indirect intervention in Ukraine, but that was uh, not about global policy. That was not about uh, Russia returning to the global stage. That was about to sort out, to uh, keep keep to sort out uh, damage and uh, uh, chaos uh, created by collapse of the Soviet Union. Because both Georgia and Ukraine was not exactly foreign policy for Russia. It was much closer to uh, domestic affairs and to, uh, to domestic narratives. Syria was different because that was the first time when Russia... Uh, after Afghanistan, after after uh, Soviet period, when Russia decided to inter- intervene uh, away, far away from its borders, and in affairs which did not correspond directly for, uh, with our domestic affairs. And uh, from my point of view, what was essential with this <coughs> 2015 intervention, after collapse of the Soviet Union, basically after 1990, when uh, U.S. Uh, launched uh, the uh, oper- the Desert Storm operation, so late 1990, early 1991, uh, it was just one global police in the world. The only country which had uh, uh, capacity, potential, uh, and will to uh, to serve in this um, uh, to play this role was the United States and no one challenged that role not everybody was happy about that but no one challenged that including Russia including China and so on uh, 2015 intervention just demonstrated that Russia started to act as United States did before and as we see 
unexpectedly and surprisingly to many people here, uh, including myself, Russian actions were quite successful, efficient, and uh, uh, cost-effective. That's the, that was quite that was not not expected at all 2015 because if we go back uh, to that period uh, most discussions uh, among uh, specialists among uh, policymakers were pretty nervous and pretty um, uh, uh, expectations were were not 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 bright because everybody of course uh, remembered Afghanistan what Soviet Union did there and suddenly it went completely differently. You know, it's it's interesting that, that in terms of uh, Russia's diplomatic relations in the Middle East, especially coming from looking at it from the United States. And one of the, one of the things is that it's it, the ability for Russia to have bilateral relations with adversarial powers, not adversarial powers to it, but adversarial powers between each other. So, for example, Saudi Arabia and Iran or is Israel and Iran. And Turkey and Saudi Arabia, Russia seems to be able to have relations with all of these states um, and very good relations with all of these states. So how does Russia's willingness to talk to everyone, and this is, of course, in contrast to the United States, which refuses outright to talk to, you know, openly with, with many powers around the world, how does this willingness to talk fit into Russia's regional and international foreign policy? Uh, you know, that's uh, part of a uh, uh, story which we touched upon a little bit earlier. Uh, Russian foreign policy, uh, especially in the Middle East, but the broader as well, but especially in the Middle East, is highly unideological, is free of any uh, big ideas and big dogmas. Uh, which is uh, uh, full contrast to the Soviet uh, foreign policy and which is a very big uh, difference to uh, foreign policy actions by both United States and European Union. Because uh, that, that, that was very funny to follow how much um, sides, uh, how much West and East, I mean political West and East of the Cold War, changed, changed sides after the end of the Cold War, when missionary Soviet Union with this uh, idea to promote socialism worldwide uh, was dead, and Russia, first of all, lost this Marxist ideology and then lost appetite for any kind of global narratives, just national interest and uh, a little bit uh, ravaged to... Uh, to those who won the Cold War, but mostly national interest and very brutal understanding. Meanwhile, United States became like a Soviet Union at the time of uh, Comintern, that just to to move to move out uh, to reach everybody to explain to others how to live and so on. And uh, uh, it didn't work in the in, in the Middle East at all. We we saw results of uh, democracy promotion in Iraq and and other places in Palestine, whatever you name it. While Russia, again in in the middle in, in the Middle Eastern uh, um, uh, situation, uh, again uh, 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 surprisingly to many here, including myself, Russia demonstrated a very balanced. Uh, uh, approach the ability to combine 
different instruments, military, political, diplomatic, economic, uh, cultural, whatever. And uh, yes, this is uh, quite uh, sensational that Russia still now uh, keeps uh, quite uh, workable and constructive relationship with everybody. Whether it will work forever, I don't know, but so far it does work. And uh, by the way, uh, coming back to one of your previous questions uh, about uh, uh, how international system can be structured and how it work, uh, works now, I think the Middle East, uh, <coughs> Russian policy in the Middle East, demonstrated a very interesting example, uh, which I would even call a prototype of possible um, uh, uh, groupings and uh, solutions for the future in this new world. This is the so-called Astana Triangle, Russia, Turkey, and Iran operating on Syria. The uniqueness of that is that, to put it very bluntly, there is zero trust between three partners, between Russia and Turkey, between Turkey and Iran, between even Russia and Iran, very low degree. Uh, Interests are mostly different. They are coinciding in, in some areas, but mostly absolutely different. Turkey, Russia, and Iran have their own um, needs and, and uh, uh, tasks in, in Syria. But there is one element which unifies all of them, and this is uh, understanding that whatever we think about the uh, two other partners, Without them, none of, uh, uh, of uh, participants can reach anything. So Russia cannot do uh, what it's doing in Syria, cannot realize uh, its interest without Turkish contribution. Same for Turkey, same for Iran. And this is uh, uh, suddenly much stronger base for constructive cooperation than any value-based alliance uh, like NATO or whatever. So I think it's it's quite an. I don't mean that it will work forever, as long as the Syrian situation uh, does exist. So that that will uh, be uh, functionable, and we see that uh, Russia and Turkey, despite growing number of differences and uh, uh, <clears throat> contradictions, they manage each time they manage Putin and Erdogan manage to overcome them, as long as they have this understanding that parts need each other for their own purposes. Afterwards, it might this, uh, this triangle might uh, collapse. Something else will emerge. Who knows what, I don't know, Russia, Israel, Saudi Arabia. What I find fascinating is um, uh, the, the relationship Russia has with Israel on the one hand, and which is a very close relationship. I think Israeli-Russian relations are better now than throughout its the history of, of Israel's existence. Um and and of course Russia's relations with Iran. Does does Russia see itself as acting as a potential mediator in these conflicts, regional conflicts? Uh okay. Uh mediator, I don't know whether this word is is the best one to describe Russian role. Maybe mediator, maybe facilitator, maybe 
I don't know. It's 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 really very difficult to to describe it because at the same time Russia is of course the uh, for this region compared to other uh, participants a military superpower and the military superpowers are not very well constituted and suited to be <laughs> mediators. Uh, but 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 in 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 a way yes because Russia has very clear idea what it wants to achieve which is by the way unique uh, series <laughs> unique case because in many other uh, places like ukraine for example or some other uh, conflicts uh, it's very difficult to identify what russia actually wants uh, to uh, to reach but in syria if you look at the whole uh, uh, history of this conflict starting from 2011 uh, a russian position was absolutely linear and crystal clear. We support regime because to keep regimes in this region is better than to change them. Just whatever we think about the, about regimes. But experience with regime changes demonstrated. Uh, watch Iraq, watch Libya, watch Egypt. So in all uh, cases, it was... Uh, was a failure. While to keep regime uh, means that uh, uh, there is a chance to stabilize situation, and that was a that was a firm line from the beginning, uh, political, diplomatic, and then military. And suddenly that that, that that line that line was initially highly unpopular, both in the Middle East and in the world. And Russia was heavily criticized 2012, 2013, 2014, especially when the Ukrainian crisis erupted. Russia was uh, on the brink of to become a real paria. But now we see that compared to pretty ununderstandable line of the United States, which was not uh, Trump's achievement, it, it started before Trump. It was even uh, more difficult to understand what did Obama want, want to achieve in, in the region. And with the total absence of the European Union, which uh, shouted slogans without doing anything, uh, with the very distant position of China, which uh, doesn't want to risk anything, and in this situation, Russian line was the only the only which worked, and suddenly, suddenly, <laughs> it, it 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 paid it paid back. So uh, in this regard, I think that Russia will continue to keep this very simple line and to convey this very simple message strength and state strength and regime okay push regime towards some changes but regime is better than non-regime and we see that now with the very big uh, reluctance and very big uh, uh, dissatisfaction but this line is more or less accepted by everybody let, let's turn to uh, Russia's western borderlands, uh, Ukraine and its post-Soviet states that are, are seeking to uh, become closer to the West. What is you, – you said that sometimes it's difficult to to know what Russia's goals are. What does it want to achieve in, say, Ukraine? Uh, what is your view of the, the Ukrainian situation? And, and more importantly, uh, given your, your reference to the EU a little while ago, what is the EU's role since it is in their you know, eastern borderlands? That's a very long story. We would need another couple of hours to discuss Ukraine. Uh, to try to put it uh, very briefly, just a couple of points. First of all, the Ukrainian crisis was not something 
which uh, just exploded because of uh, coincidence of circumstances or because of bad will of Russia or something else. That was, a, unfortunately, very logical culmination of a long development which started 30 years ago, which started with the um, collapse of uh, uh, Berlin Wall and unification of Germany. What I mean is that unification of Germany in the form as it happened and uh, Russian acceptance, Russian recognition of uh, uh, unified Germany to join NATO, not Russian, Soviet, Soviet recognition because Gorbachev did it, uh, was beginning of this long, long journey which led to um, uh, Euromaidan in Kiev and then uh, Crimea, Eastern Ukraine and uh, everything else. It, what I mean is that the idea that any country is free to choose alliance to join, which was led as a basis to German unification and which was accepted by Soviet Union at that time. And it sounds very, very, very great. It sounds just and, uh, and correct. But uh, in fact, why Soviet Union accepted this formula was actually uh, because uh, for Gorbachev, it was very difficult to officially state that Soviet Union was not against uh, Germany's membership in NATO. It would not be perceived uh, excellently uh, in, in, in Soviet Union and uh, by many members of establishment. And so they invented a, a, a formula which uh, uh, was not about Germany, which was a general one, to choose alliances and okay. And it happened. But then this formula started to be used at each time when NATO, for example, or European Union, but first of all NATO, uh, expanded eastwards. And when each time Russia started to object, be it Poland, be it Lithuania, be it uh, whatever, Estonia, Slovakia, uh, Western powers said, sorry, but you see, it's not about us, it's about them. They want and we we cannot do anything. We need to accept them. And that was, so to say, automatic extension until it came to Ukraine. And Ukraine, I, I spent hours in 2000s uh, arguing with my American and European friends uh, about Ukraine when I tried to, to tell them that, you know, don't touch Ukraine in this context. It, it will end up badly. And you know what I heard uh, as a response uh, many, many times? They told me, okay, well, we understand you. We feel your pain. It's difficult, post-imperial uh, psychological transformation, so on. Yes, we know that some of our, our countries went through that. It's difficult. But look, uh, Russia was furious when Poland, Czech Republic, and Hungary uh, joined NATO. Okay, nothing happened. Russia was against uh, Lithuania, Latvia, Estonia joining NATO. Nothing happened. Russia, Russia uh, uh, accepted. So why Ukraine will be different? And when I tried to say that Ukraine will be different, because Ukraine for Russia is, is not Poland, is not Lithuania. It's something else. It's part of our 
so to say, Seoul. <laughs> this is the place where Russian statehood was born uh, more than 1,000 years ago and, and where Russia was baptized and so on. They told me, oh, come on, come on. It's, uh, it's lyrics and so on. But <laughs> suddenly it, it, it happened. When it came to Ukraine, this automatic process of extension of NATO and EU, okay, Euro-Atlantic institutions. And that, that was, by the way, very, very telling that the uh, pretext, the, 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 the final reason for this crisis was not NATO expansion. It was EU's uh, uh, willingness to, to, to sign association agreement with Ukraine. But uh, in, in, in Russian understanding, it was all the same. NATO, EU, it's just... Uh, and so when it when it happened, and when uh, uh, President Yanukovych uh, made all stupidities he could he could make, uh, and when he destroyed everything, when he first uh, uh, cheated uh, the West, then then tried to abandon Russia, and so, on, and Euromaidan won. Of course, it was perceived uh, by Russian leadership as a as a real final battle for uh, the status of playing any role in this, in this uh, uh, territory. Because uh, why Crimea, Crimean takeover was a response uh, to, uh, to change, uh, change in, political change in Kiev, because I think it was correct assessment that in case uh, Crimea would remain part of Ukraine after this change, the... Uh, Ex, uh, expulsion of Russian Black Sea Fleet from Sevastopol would be would happen automatically very soon, because the uh, agreement which uh, Yanukovych uh, prolonged and extended uh, would be just terminated, and that would mean that by year 2017, according to the initial agreement, uh, Russian Black Sea Fleet uh, had to to leave um, uh, Crimea, and for Russia it was impossible to accept. For many reasons, it's another discussion. And then happened what happened. So in this regard, um, it might sound uh, terrible for um, American audience, but uh, I'm fine with Crimean, uh, Crimean move because I really believe that in case Russia would not do it uh, in uh, March um, 2014, we would later on arrive to the full-scale uh, interstate war between Russia and Ukraine when they would try to push uh, Russian Black Sea Fleet uh, out of, from Crimea. But another part of the story, this Eastern Ukraine, was a completely different thing. It was not about a decision made and implemented. It, it was about an improvisation in a very chaotic environment, chaotic in Kiev, chaotic in Eastern Ukraine, and pretty chaotic even in Moscow. When uh, some people in eastern Ukraine believed that Russia wanted to uh, continue Crimean uh, march and, and come to take more of Ukraine, some people in Moscow believed that it was time to do it, some people in Kiev believed it was time to finally crack down all Russian speakers in, uh, in, in Ukraine, and so on. <clears throat> and at the end of the day, it was nothing like like a step by step reaction by all sides, which led to a terrible, uh, terrible development in uh, late 2014, early 2015. And now, what we have is actually not a result of a strategic planning or even of a, uh, some uh, uh, well uh, thought um, uh, cause of events. It was just a result of of of, of this chaos. 
How to get out from that? Of that, it's it's another question. I think Russia learned a lot from this. It was a very bitter lesson. It was a very very bad and tragic lesson. But uh, it it changed uh, many uh, things in Russia. On the other hand, uh, when I follow Western policy vis-à-vis Ukraine, I don't I don't take what happens in the United States now about Ukraine. It's like it's something beyond the. <laughs> beyond the line of absurd to me, but okay. But even Europeans, they are so much tired. They 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 suddenly understood what what I tried to tell them 15 years ago that Ukraine is not just a big Poland; it's something else. And now they know that. <laughs> Let Let's turn to the U.S. Russia. Um, and, and you know we've seen since since the failure uh, of the reset uh, a gradual deterioration and an acceleration of course after 2014 of U- US Russia relations and uh with the election of Donald Trump there was some hope in Russia it seems that uh things would would change maybe there might be some sort of rapprochement or a, another attempt at a reset however you want to call it what is the view of of the United States uh, domestically uh, and its actions in terms of foreign policy from Russia now, and how does that feed into the relations with it? It's uh, it's a process, so it's it's changing uh, quite quickly. Uh, it would be correct to say that Russia welcomed uh, uh, Donald Trump as uh, the president in 2016. I don't know what happened uh, during election campaign. So I simply have no information and I uh, uh, can imagine that uh, some efforts uh, uh, could be made to make uh, life of Hillary Clinton uh, a bit less uh, comfortable (laughs) than it was by some actors. But what I'm absolutely sure, that's uh, based on all my experience of living in this country for um, almost uh, 53 years now, uh, all those, this huge campaign to destabilize United States by meddling and in- intervention, which uh, became like a common wisdom in the United States now, it simply could not happen because I know how this state works. It 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 doesn't work that that greatly. <laughs> it's very inefficient. I think uh, President Putin should be extremely pleased to read everything which is uh, subscribed to him uh, in the Western press because he is not that big as they as they believe. But anyway, uh, Trump was um, came as a as a very positive surprise. Uh, I can say that no one here in Russia expected him to win despite whatever happened. Uh, And uh, it was a funny episode. uh, uh, The day after U.S. election, the morning after U.S. election, in the United States it was night, in Russia it was already uh, beginning of the next day. Uh, uh, It was a routine uh, ceremony of um, um, uh, receiving credentials, the president, uh, received credentials from newly arrived ambassadors. Uh, it, it happens twice a year. And uh, this ceremony was postponed for more than an hour because uh, they had to rewrite the speech 
by the president. Short introduction. Because the introduction was uh, based on the assumption that Hillary Clinton, of course, would win. And uh, they he, he wanted to say that whatever happened, but we are ready to work with any president chosen by the And suddenly, <laughs> suddenly something else. So it was, it was certainly a big surprise, and it created uh, many uh, positive expectations. To me, absolutely ungrounded, because I... I, I'm proud to say, and, and you can, if somebody wants, can, can, can find my, my articles from 2016. I, from the beginning, I feared that Trump, uh, hypothetical Trump victory would be very bad for Russia's relationship for one simple reason, because I just read what Trump said before. What he said during campaign, before campaign, what he wrote in his book, <clears throat> what he said in his interviews uh, 20 years ago. So, and uh, it was absolutely obvious that um, uh, this guy will never see relationship with Russia as something really valuable. Because in his world, in his uh, understanding of uh, world affairs, uh, Russia does not exist so much. Putin does exist as a person. But not Russia, because for Trump, the main criteria for uh, his uh, foreign policy, this is uh, trade balance with the United States. In this regard, uh, South Korea is more important than Russia or uh, Europe, Mexico, Canada, whatever. Russia does not exist in this field. Russia does exist in another, in a different field of strategic stability and so, but it's not the field of Trump. So uh, anyway... In Russia, it was initially uh, expectation of uh, even a big deal, something. But then, step by step, uh, uh, especially when uh, this big uh, fight uh, erupted in the United States, uh, first because of Russia meddling, now because of Ukrainian meddling, whatever. Uh, I think now, uh, first of all, we can say that under Trump, Russian-U.S. relationship deteriorated to the level which was unseen before. I would say it's worse than in the Cold War time, because even under Reagan, even it was some kind of mutual understanding, very negative one, but still. And now it's not the case between Russia and the United States. And even worse, and this is, I think, problem for, for years to come, even after Trump. Uh, there is no agenda anymore because during the Cold War, after the Cold War, it was a more or less a rational consolidated agenda, not very big, never economy, uh, from time to time some regional conflicts, always strategic stability and arms control, but it was a combination of issues which Russia and the United States um, uh, perceived as important to, to, to discuss. Now it's not the case anymore because uh, you know, strategic stability is almost disappearing uh, because of um, unwillingness of Trump administration to, uh, to stick to those treatments, uh, treaties. Uh, economy is still non-existing. Trust uh, out of question. Uh, Russia is a domestic uh, mean in U.S. foreign policy. Conflicts, yes, but they are not connected to each other. In some cases, like North Korea, for example, or Afghanistan, or even Syria, we see some elements of not cooperation, but, but inter positive interaction, risk, risk the damage control, and so on. 
but it's not an agenda it's just uh, individual elements and uh, i'm afraid that in any case will trump be reelected next year or will somebody else be elected next year uh it's i don't see any reasons for this agenda to be revitalized soon sooner or later it will happen and uh, i can share with you that uh, uh we can uh, hear some uh some views uh in in, in russia now uh, which are different from we we, we heard uh, in previous years uh in particular that uh not now but after a while it will be absolutely necessarily needed for russia to come back to more or less normal relationship with the united states otherwise russia will be in more and more uh vulnerable and weaker position vis-a-vis -vis china because china benefits most uh mostly uh, out of uh, russian uh, us relationship collapse so and in this regard i don't i don't i'm not totally pessimistic uh, in the long term but in the short term i don't see any perspective at all and, and finally and this actually uh, your mention of china leads to my last question um what talk about uh, russia's relationships with china and and what place does it have in you know because china of course is a is a bordering state it's a, it's a rising and incredibly influential state globally and, re and never, not to say regionally so what is the nature of the relationship between uh, russia and china yeah that's that's a very interesting uh, question and a very interesting nature i would say that uh on the one hand the uh, uh prevailing uh, the, the the view prevailing in the west that russia uh, inevitably will uh, fall into, slide into the position of uh, weaker junior partner to China. Uh, and that's why Russia should uh, should wake up and, and, and uh, improve relationship with America and Europe. Uh, this view is not shared here uh, because our relationship is extremely complex. <coughs> In terms of in terms of uh, economy, it's no no discussion. It's obviously that Russia is uh, by far overtaken by China, and this this gap will just grow. In terms of uh, military capacity, Russia is supreme now and will uh, remain much stronger for next decade or a bit more. Then it will change gradually but it's not immediate threat in terms of china taking under control russian so to say political system which uh, uh, some people in the west uh, assume will happen uh, because of uh, economic dependence because of the demography and so on uh, paradoxically there is no fear in russia about that so in russia uh, russia is for now at least uh, the only neighbor of china which is not afraid of china you might you might argue that russia is too i don't know <laughs> not 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 aware of of uh, uh dangers but but uh, that's fact of life that russia is not uh, afraid of china and russia believes that now and for the foreseeable future 
we will always have the capacity to to balance Chinese uh, uh, Chinese influence. Uh, having said that, uh, I don't mean that uh, there are no problems. More than that, the more interaction with China, the more practical problems in how to deal with them. Uh, suddenly, uh, after a short-lived euphoria, uh, people in Russia, be it in business community or in the political community, started to understand that we un- we don't understand China, or we we do understand China much worse than they do understand us. That's quite interesting. Uh, so it it should be it should be. Uh, uh, it should uh, be confronted this, this problem, but also to be fair, uh, so the uh, official statements that relationship between Russia and China has never been better in history than now. That's correct. That's really true, and that that uh, also depends a little bit on Chinese growing uncertainty, because they they started to appreciate Russian. Uh, lack of fear because they they see that uh, uh, because all neighbors are afraid of china and try to find uh, some ways to counterbalance them china sees more faces uh, more more and more problems so in this regard russia which is not nervous about china is an asset but then we can have a long debate about uh, one belt one road about uh, uh, to what extent Russian and Chinese interests uh, coincide or contradict. But <clears throat> to, to make a long story short, Russia now and for years to come will be able to uh, build up a balanced relationship with China. For the next period, it will be made, and, and next period, I mean decades, it will be the biggest challenge to Russian foreign policy how to keep this balanced relationship with China. That was Fyodor Lukyanov, Editor-in-Chief of Russia and Global Affairs, Chairman of the Presidium on the Council of Foreign and Defense Policy, the Research Director of the Valdai International Discussion Club, and a Research Professor at the Higher School of Economics in Moscow. He's the editor of Russia in the Middle East, Viewpoints, Policies, Strategies, published by Eastview. I'm your host, Sean Guillory, and this is the SRB Podcast. The SRB Podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and listeners like you. If you enjoyed this podcast and want to help support it, please take a moment to share it on Facebook and Twitter, like my Facebook page, Sean's Russia Blog, write a review, or recommend the show to your friends. The SRB Podcast comes cheap, but it is not free to make. You can help support it by joining the table of ranks at srbpodcast.org. Thanks to all my high excellencies, high wellborns, and noblenesses for your continued patronage. You can find past shows on iTunes or SoundCloud, or you can download them directly from srbpodcast.org as well. Until next time, bye. Here, Andy, what's all this about a war? Oh, I don't know, something to do with the oil prices, I think. What oil crisis? <laughs> I couldn't even afford half a gallon of petrol on my dog chain, let alone run a motor. No, me neither.